This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on Line Upon Line. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written. With me is Eric Flickinger. This is where we answer your Bible questions. Eric, you ready to go? We are ready to go, and we've got quite a few questions today, so we're going to dive right in. Here is our first question. This question comes from Phoenix, and Phoenix asks the question, is it okay for doctors and nurses to work on the Sabbath? Oh, that's a good question. What does the Bible say? Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work. Okay, so you've got a dedicated Christian who keeps the Sabbath and is asked to work minister as a nurse or doctor. Is that the same as a bricklayer or a boilermaker, or do we look at this slightly differently? Well, I think in this case we uh, we have evidence that Jesus treated this a little bit differently. You look at Jesus' ministry, and he most certainly healed people on the Sabbath. In fact, it sometimes got him in some hot water with the Jewish authorities. They said, you can't be doing that. But Jesus, we know that Jesus didn't do anything wrong. In fact, he's our example. So what about other people today who are, if you will, healing people on the Sabbath? There's a parallel there. Now imagine the, the, the doctor who delivers babies and one of his patients said, I don't know, a pregnant woman, a patient. Is that the right word? She's not sick. Um, one of the people under his care, doctor, I think it's time. And what does he say? Oh, listen, lady, uh, Sabbath doesn't end for another seven hours. I don't think that's feasible or practical or appropriate. No, and you think about hospitals. What would happen if all of the doctors, if all of the nurses at all of the hospitals went home on Friday evening and came back 24 hours later to see which patients were still alive. Yeah. Uh, doesn't seem to me that that's something Jesus would approve of. Now, having said what we've said, the Bible says don't work on the Sabbath, right? And that's not merely a legal, here's the law, obey the law. This is God saying it's in your best interests. Right. So I would respectfully suggest that if you work in the uh, healing profession, if you're a doctor or a nurse, anesthesiologist or a nurse practitioner or some such thing. And your job may require you to be present between sundown Friday and sundown Saturday. Try not to be. Try to switch out with somebody. Even though Jesus healed on the Sabbath and we would accept healing as appropriate, it may not be in your best interests spiritually because now you're missing out on the rest that God wants you to get. You're missing out on the worship experience that God wants you to have. You might be missing special family time or ministry time. So the fact that you may doesn't really mean that you should. So I'd encourage you to do your very best to pray to God, to seek a way around it, to try to get the Sabbath off anyway. Uh, And then as God leads you, you'll do the right thing if you follow him. I've got a question for you, Eric. It's from Peggy. Why won't every eye see Jesus when he comes? Well, I think Peggy... The answer is every eye will see Jesus when he comes. Because when you take a look at what it says in Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 10, 
it says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. So when he comes back, every eye is going to see him. That's right. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, you know, the disciples watched Jesus go up into heaven. Uh, the clouds took him up, and the angel said that he will so come in like manner as you've seen him go, which would indicate that you saw him go. You saw him go up there in the clouds with the clouds, and the reverse is going to happen when he comes back. So it does seem like we absolutely will see Jesus when he returns. Absolutely. All right. All right, we have another question. This one comes from Robert. And Robert asks, where do cavemen fit in the Bible story? Scientists have found bones dated back to 3.2 million years ago. Yeah, that's right. But when you read the Bible, the Bible indicates that creation took place about 6,000 years ago. Oh, wait, did you hear that? It's a big uh, difference. Oh, yeah, but some of there was a howl of protest I could hear. From, what? You Luddites, you ignoramus. Oh, you believing that Bible stuff? I believe the Bible too. But my science teacher said, we have two different narratives. The creation narrative is what it is, about 6,000 years. Even if you don't think 6,000, you know, you can't stretch it a whole lot further than that. 6,000 years. Mm. Science will say millions of billions of billions of millions. And careful, when I say science will say, we ought to be accurate about this and say that some scientists will say, maybe many, but you'll find scientists who absolutely wholeheartedly 100% believe the Word of God. Okay, let's try and, we can't reconcile these. And, and, and what we're going to try and do is speak very respectfully of the scientific community. Uh, it's easy for Christians, when they're talking about various scientific practices, to just junk it and say that's absolutely unreliable and these scientists don't have a brain in their head. Um, they do. That's why they're scientists and the methods that they use are frequently used with great success. So we want to speak respectfully and, 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 and we don't want you thinking, if you're a scientist, that we have no respect for you. We have an immense amount of respect for you. But let's try and fit these things in their appropriate sure, place. Sure. Uh, the nature of science is that science is constantly looking for answers, looking for new evidence. And over the course of time, the view that scientists have on a variety of things, whether it's the, the size of the universe or the dates that this particular being lived on the planet or when a particular strata of Earth formed, if you will, those dates change over time depending on the research that they have done at that particular time. And think about the ramifications of that. I've read articles that said, you know, the universe isn't this old, it's this old. Mm -hmm. In other words, we were off by several hundred million years. Right. That's a big discrepancy. We were off by millions or hundreds of millions of years. That says we were really, really, really wrong, even though we thought we were really, really right. So we really do, I appreciate what you said. We've got to consider that science is continually learning, developing, growing. Sure it is. Something about the Bible, though, is that God's Word doesn't change. The story that's in the Bible remains the story that's in the Bible. And when you go back, as, uh, as you mentioned, John, you look back, creation from a biblical standpoint is about 6,000 years ago. Something that's also interesting uh, about the Bible is when God created this planet, when he spoke things into existence, when he spoke the trees into existence, when he made man from the dust of the earth, when he spoke the animals into existence, how old was the tree one minute after God made the tree? Mm -hmm. Well, technically the tree was one minute old. But was it a little sapling? Was it a little seedling? Or was it a fully formed 
tree. So whatever God formed back at creation had what we might call apparent age to it already. God didn't form Adam as a, as a little baby. He was a fully formed human being. He had apparent age. Could be that the rocks have apparent age too. Oh, I agree. Let there be light. Boom, there was light. But that light, you would think, took an awful long time to travel from the sun to the earth, except it didn't. It's as though God reached up to the sun and pulled the light down right away. That's right. Now, you've got the Piltdown Man. It was yes. said to be the missing link. It was a hoax. It was a complete hoax. But science bought it and said, we're just so thrilled. Science was wrong. Yeah. Some years ago, we went to the Creation Museum up in um, northern Kentucky and did some interviews there. And there's a slogan they use up there. It says, the facts don't speak for themselves. Mm. So you find a rock, the rock doesn't have a date stamp on it. Someone interprets that through their particular lens and according to their particular prejudices. And so if I'm a scientist who believes that the earth is billions of years old and I'm looking at something or interpreting something, I'm interpreting it through that lens. Now you're going to say the same about me or John, you're a Christian and you interpret the world through your lens by your worldview. And yeah, yeah. that's 100% true. Yeah. What else has science left us that and maybe leaves us scratching our head. Well, you have these ideas of, of the cavemen. Um, the one that was mentioned here, uh, 3.2, was it million years ago? Uh, 3.2 million years old. Uh, probably Lucy uh, is the one being spoken of here as Australopith Australopithecus afarensis uh, is, is Lucy. Uh, Lucy is a whole lot easier to say. Yeah, I mean. But how old was she and was she even a human being? You take a look at the bones that were found, it only accounts for about 40% of the skeleton. Some people wonder whether they were really human bones or were they ape bones. Uh, basically, scientists have some ways of approaching this idea of cavemen. Sometimes they mix the human bones and ape bones together. That was Piltdown Man. Then you have sometimes where they will take uh, human bones and paint them with more ape-like characteristics. And on the flip side, sometimes they'll take the ape bones and paint them with more human characteristics. So it's interesting to see the way that it, it all kind of comes together. Do we have absolutely convincing evidence that people lived millions and millions of years ago? Certainly not from a biblical standpoint, no. because that would mean that death and pain and suffering existed on this planet many millions of years before Adam and Eve took the bite of that fruit. And there goes the Bible story. It's just gone and it's unreliable and we've just contradicted it. You know what I don't mind doing? I don't mind admitting that there are some things about God that I don't understand. For goodness sake, I don't understand how my cell phone works. I don't understand. But I pick the thing up and I use it and I say, there are some things about this that are beyond me, but I'm just sure glad it works. Uh, with the Bible, there are some things I don't understand. Where did God come from? How did, how did God self-exist? I don't know. How was Jesus able to change water into juice or, or, or into wine, as the Bible calls it? I don't know. How was Jesus able to raise Lazarus from the dead? He'd been in the tomb for days. I don't know. Other than God is God and he is able and if I could explain everything about God, he would be too small to be our God. So if I'm going to choose a side on this, I'm going to choose the side of the Bible. It's been verified. It's shown itself to be trustworthy. It's, it's again and again and again shown to be the word of God and reliable. 
if you have to force me to choose between the Word of God and some scientist someplace, with respect to the wonderful intelligence of the scientist, I'm going to choose God's Word every time. Robert had another question. Robert did have another question. His second question was, where did Cain's wife come from? In Genesis chapter 5 and verse number 4, here's what it says. It says, In the days of Adam, after he had begotten Seth, were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. You are going where I think you're going with this. So, who was Cain's wife? Well, there were no other people on earth at the time other than Adam and Eve and their children. So, so why was it okay for Cain to take a wife from his, among, from his own family? Well, why was that okay? To start with, that's all there was. Right. But there was a big difference between Cain's genetics, if you will, and ours. Cain was very close to perfect. Adam and Eve were formed perfectly. He was one generation set back. Certainly sin had entered the world and humanity had begun to degrade. Not to the point where we are today. Nothing not by like a today. long shot. And so today, if, if I had a sister, which I don't, if I were to marry her and we were to have children, it might not be such, in fact, it certainly wouldn't be such a good idea. There would likely be some genetic challenges. Back in Cain's day, it was a whole different story. And I don't think that you have to think that Cain necessarily married his sister whose pigtails he pulled and, and yeah. so forth. Uh, they lived long, there were many children. He may well have married someone rather younger than him, someone he wasn't really very well acquainted with because perhaps he'd moved or perhaps he'd gone on with his life or, or, or something. So um, it's, it, there's really only one answer and we say it unabashedly. Uh, it's a little awkward perhaps, but not really. Cain married his sister, that's all there was to it. God later on absolutely, completely prohibited such a thing so that if Cain and Mrs. Cain had been alive two, three, four thousand years later, that would have been completely unacceptable in the sight of God. Hey, what's unacceptable to us is if you have a Bible question that you'd like an answer for and you don't email us about it. That's unacceptable. So email us at lineuponline at iiw.org and we'll do our very best to answer you right here with a biblical answer to your Bible question. We'll be right back with more in just a moment. More and more people are watching It Is Written TV for the first time. They're watching their favorite It Is Written episodes, listening to inspiring sermon series, and much more. They're watching them here, here, and even here. See for yourself why people are turning to It Is Written TV to watch their favorite Christian programs live and on demand. Watch It Is Written TV for free on Roku and Apple TV or visit itiswritten.tv. What does the Bible say about astrology? Why do bad things happen to good people? What color is Jesus? If you have a question, we'd love to find an answer for you from the Bible. Line up online from It Is Written TV. 
Welcome back to Lineup Online, brought to you by It Is Written. He's Eric Flickinger, and I'm John Bradshaw. And Eric, this is where we answer Bible questions. I'll throw one right to you. All right. The question is this from Bob, and Bob asks, is there something wrong with eating meat or drinking alcohol? Well, Bob, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of unpack this a little bit. How, how about we start with eating meat, and then we'll go on to drinking alcohol. Uh, and it may take us a little while to get through this. Is there anything wrong with eating meat? Well, let's kind of go back to the very beginning. At the very beginning, God created mankind. He created Adam and Eve, put them in the garden, and he gave them some food to eat. In Genesis chapter 1, verse number 29, we find what that food is. He gave them fruit, he gave them grain, he gave them nuts, and shortly after that, vegetables were folded into it as well. That was the original diet. After the flood, you read in Genesis chapter 6, Genesis chapter 7, we find that meat was added to the diet. Now, not any meat, but certain kinds of meat. In Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14, God explains the difference between the clean and the unclean animals. The clean animals, he says, you have permission to eat. The unclean, he says, no permission. But we've still got the ideal diet that comes from the Garden of Eden. Anything wrong with a well-planned plant-based diet? Oh, sure, because I love burgers, or I love spare ribs, or I've developed a taste for, for meat dripping with fat. That's when you say, oh, I just can't imagine. We don't need meat in our diet. Meat is profoundly unhealthy. It's unhealthy. By the way, the World Health Organization stated not very long ago, processed meat causes cancer. And the world heard that, shrugged, and went right back to its bacon and salami. So the thing is, the answer to your question, no, there's nothing wrong with that diet at all, except we want what we want. That's the challenge that we face as human beings. You know that food scientists craft food to almost be addictive. They craft food in such a way that it creates the maximum possible response from you, the maximum desire. Um, the people who create the food that you eat make it really difficult for you to say, no, I don't want more of that. That's on a sort of a chemical uh, basis. So uh, back to you. You were, you were walking us through this. Yep. So you've got basically the three diets, the ideal diet in the Bible, the one that's acceptable, which includes some of the clean meats, but it's not the best for you. And then the unacceptable diet. It's kind of like, kind of like the fuel that you put in your car. You may have a nice car that calls for high-octane fuel. That's what you should put in it. That's what's going to get you the best performance from your automobile. You could also put in low-octane fuel, which the car's going to run. It's probably not going to do everything that you would like it to do, everything that the manufacturer would like it to do. It'll probably run. Or you could put diesel in the tank. Yeah. And there's nothing stopping you from doing that. That's right. You can do it, but your car is going to be a disaster. So we've got to decide what we want to put in these tanks. So God, God gave us these bodies. These are the, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And he cares very much what we do with the bodies. Best thing to do, put the fuel in it that God created it to run on. That's right. Bob, when you look into the science of this and on uh, It Is Written programs, we've spoken many times to medical experts who know this stuff inside and out. When you put the good stuff in, you do better, much, much, much better. When you put in that which is deleterious, that which is harmful, you just don't do so well and you invite all kinds of problems. So is there something wrong with eating meat? 
I think it's a yes from Eric. Two yeses, Bob. There's something wrong. There's plenty wrong. But we've saved the best for last. What about drinking alcohol? Well, Bob, <clears throat> it all depends on what your threshold is. How much wife beating do you like? How much domestic violence are you comfortable with? How much, how much carnage on the road are you happy with? How much cancer would you like there to be in the world? What is almost never spoken about in relationship to alcohol is that alcohol causes cancer big. I read one article where alcohol is, is a contributing factor in at least seven different cancers and so on. This stuff is bad. The alcohol industry is an industry of death, disease, and mayhem. Ooh, sorry, but it's true. Now, in the Bible, God did not recommend that we drink alcohol. Some people are mistaken about that. Yeah. Some people take, an, take uh, for example, the time when Jesus went to the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, when they say he turned water into wine. He turned a lot of water into a lot of wine, but the right. question is, what type of wine did he turn it into? When you take a look at both the Old and the New Testament, you find something very interesting with the word usage. In the Old Testament, the word wine comes from the Hebrew word yain. In the New Testament, it comes from the Greek word enos. What those two words mean, though, depending on context, could be two different things. It could be unfermented wine, or what we would today call grape juice, or it could be the fermented variety. So we have to look at the context of the Bible to find out which it is. With the example of Jesus in the wedding feast of Cana, I think the context is telling us Jesus did not contribute gallons and gallons of wine enough to, to slosh an entire wedding party. Exactly. And when Paul wrote to Timothy and said, don't drink water for the sake of your stomach, but drink a little wine, he was not talking about Cabernet Sauvignon or, or a good Merlot. No such thing. He was talking about grape juice. That's something that people will drink to settle their stomach, not alcohol. You know, Bob, alcohol contributes to suicide in an immense way. Um, people who commit suicide sort of out of the blue with no history of mental illness frequently are egged on by alcohol. It is frequently a contributing factor. So is there anything wrong with drinking alcohol? There's nothing right with drinking alcohol. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Alcohol destroys. Alcohol causes death. Well, I drink just a little bit. Well, then you won't miss it when it's gone because it's just a little bit. And by the way, experts recently said that if you are a drinker, there is no, uh, uh, there is no amount of cutting back that makes your alcohol safer to drink. So if you drink this much alcohol, and then you say, I'm cutting down to this much alcohol, it didn't make it safer. It just doesn't. It's profoundly harmful. It causes massive destruction. It is opposed to every principle of the gospel that you can think of. You know, there's a verse here, or several verses, that, uh, that are interesting that draw this out. Uh, when you take a look at Proverbs chapter 23, Proverbs 23, beginning in verse number 29, it says, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. 
Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. That's a pretty. That's a, that's pretty straight. That is a damning indictment. Uh, the Bible is very clear. I remember many, many years ago, a brand new Christian, a pastor, showed me a very, very long list of Bible texts that mention alcohol. Not one of them mention it positively. Mm. So consider that. Thanks for your question. It's a really good question. I don't mean to get on you or anybody else, but if you felt like you were being got on, it's okay with me. That was the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Got another question, and this is from Henrietta, and she asks, what are the sins against the Holy Spirit? Now, we've answered this uh, question relatively recently. Um, let's kind of whip through this pretty quickly. Sure. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. You have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. Now, He being a person can be offended. We can resist Him. We can grieve Him. In fact, Ephesians 4 verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse number 51, says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So how can we resist the Holy Spirit? How do we grieve him away? What is he trying to do with us? The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, attempts us to lead us in God's way of righteousness. And when we say no to the Holy Spirit, when we say we refuse to follow, we grieve the Holy Spirit we sin against the Holy Spirit. This is really what the unpardonable sin is. It's not a particular sin, it's a condition in sin, where we say to God, no, not following, maybe later, maybe never, this is the sin against the Holy Spirit. Hope you don't mind that brief answer, but this is a question that comes up from time to time, and so we thought this time we'd kind of um, flip through it pretty quickly. We have another question here. This one's from Ruby. And Ruby asks, where in the Bible can I find the phrase clouds of angels? Ooh, do you know? I, I don't think I've come across the phrase clouds of angels. And if you want to double check, you can always Google or go to your favorite uh, Bible app and type in clouds of angels and see if it pops up. I didn't find that it pops up, but the concept is certainly very clear. Revelation 1 verse 7, behold, he cometh with clouds Yes. And every eye shall see. And we really think those are clouds of angels, don't sure. we? I do. And, and it makes sense because if you go back and look at Acts chapter 1, this is where Jesus is ascending to heaven. In Acts 1 verses 9 through 11, it says this. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, the they here would be the disciples. While they watched, he, Jesus, was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, these are likely angels, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So here they're telling the disciples, you saw Jesus go up and he went up with clouds. When you see him come back, He's going to be coming back with clouds again. And as you just mentioned in Revelation 1, verse 7, that's exactly what it says. Great question. Good questions. You have questions? We'd love to hear from you. Email us, lineuponline at iiw.org. I'll say that one more time. Lineuponline at iiw.org. And Eric will do your best to give you a Bible answer to your question. And if he can't, I'll try. And if we can't, we'll tell you. Thanks so very much for joining us. Eric, it's been fun. Thank you. Fantastic. We'll have to do it again. We'll do this again sometime soon. We hope you'll join us for that. 
Uh, Thank you for being part of this program. Get your questions to us. Pray for us. We'll see you again next time with more Line Upon Line.